0: You're listening to Under the Radar Podcast, where artists share their childhood memories, musical inspirations, and the milestones that help shape them and their music. I'm your host, Celine Teoblocky.
1: This is art where the message matters more than the music. This album is my oral transcription. It's me trying to educate people about concepts of racism that are not known to most, you know? Because a lot of racism is, is merely tradition and custom. A lot of it is not even intentional. And we're a nation that was built as a slaveocracy. I am an evolving term that we can't agree with. What up? This is Adrian Young. And my album out now is called The American Negro. Distributed through jazz is dead. Even though I was never a picanet, I am the sound of America. The dissonance they create. I am a black American, colored by America's ineptitude. I am an African American, struggling with my allegiance to the motherland. I am an evolving light, living under the shade of our ancestors. I am your American Negro. The
0: American Negro is a record like nothing on the charts at the moment. The message takes precedence, but the music is a powerful mix of jazz, soul, funk, and sometimes just plain spoken word. It's in the tradition of 60s activist, street poet, Gil Scott Heron's work. The American Negro is also a protest record and a history lesson. And its creator, Adrian Young, is an artist, DJ, musician, producer, and so much more. He's the owner of Linear Labs, an all-analog recording studio in LA. Together with Ali Shaheed Muhammad, he's the co-founder of the Jazz is Dead label. It's not hard to see why Adrian feels we need an album like the American Negro now. But before we get into that, Let's hear how Adrian's love for soul and hip-hop from a young age eventually leads him from sampling old records to making his own classic-sounding albums. I think of you as a kid who is a bit of a tinkerer. And somebody who maybe loved old movies, just from what you've gone on to do, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But where in L.A. did you grow up?
1: I grew up all around America, but like junior high, I was in Cerritos. Then I moved into the Inland Empire through high school. Then I went back to Orange County and Anaheim Hills for college. And I started graduate school there. And then I've been in L.A. for the last 16 years.
0: How come you were travelling so much? Is it because of your parents and work?
1: Yeah, exactly. Parents, military.
0: As a child, what would a perfect day for you have been like?
1: As a child, a perfect day for me was having no homework and going outside and, and riding my skateboard or playing basketball. That was a perfect day for me. I'm 42 years old now, and I think back to a time when I had no actual obligations. If your homework was done, that was it. You know, okay, yeah, I had to clean my room, but I mean, that's it. So every day you wake up and it's all about what can I do to entertain myself today? What's interesting about that is entertaining myself now is part of my survival because I put myself in the position where my art is my work and I work hard as hell in order to be able to fully express myself. And I take it very seriously. But at the same time, it is so enjoyable. So in many ways, I'm still that kid uh, that loves to finish his homework so he could do what he wants to do.
0: When you were a kid, what did you do? Was it like, you know, messing around with your records?
1: When I was a kid, I was like a big into dancing. I was like a (laughs) b-boy freestyle dancer. Um, And I loved to... Mess around with little keyboards and stuff, um, and you know, watch TV and just have fun. That's it, it's just about having fun, you know.
0: (laughs) Do you have a memory that haunts you from your childhood?
1: I had a really beautiful childhood. There's nothing that really haunts me as being a kid. Yeah, there's, I mean, honestly, I was pretty fortunate, I was pretty lucky to grow up with two loving parents. Uh, My parents are from Guyana, South America, so they're immigrants, Mm -hmm. and they gave me a lot of values that that I put into my children now, you know, and so, you know, I didn't grow up with uh, alcoholic parents or, you know, parents that abused drugs or anything. It was all like
2: mm.
1: very Huxtable or Cosby show, you know, in my house with, you know, the the show. So that's how it was for me.
0: So they were very into the arts and very into raising a Renaissance man like giving you culture and
1: yeah. and
0: the value of education and all of that.
1: Yeah, more, more so the value of education. My parents, yeah, they're creative people, but I'm the one, I'm the odd one in the family that was like full artist, basically.
0: I read somewhere that you talked about uh, one Christmas when you and your brother got given Christmas presents and you were pretty psyched. Um, what were your Christmas presents?
1: Uh, The the most important Christmas present I ever got was uh, when I was 18. My parents bought me an MPC 2000s Akai sampler and a Tascam Porta Studio 8-track recorder. And that allowed me to finally start making music. I had a professional equipment. And in using this equipment... I realized that the music I actually liked the most was the records I was sampling. It wasn't the derivative music made from the sample. Mm-hmm. So I just started studying that. And then I realized, oh, this music's all made with live instruments and it's recorded to analog tape. I need to learn how to record analog tape and play live instruments. And that was around 96.
0: Mm-hmm. What was the first time you sort of became really cognizant of the thing cult music and its transformative power?
1: When I was young. I mean, I was, I grew up, a dude that was in love with hip hop culture and I loved Michael Jackson. Um, I love Luther Vandross, you know, uh, I just love music. And when you're younger, the mystique of music really takes over. It's something that is just very heavenly. And then as you get older, you get to understand that, well, it's just people making music. And the issue is, well, you know, now that you're older, it doesn't necessarily mean you're wiser because, Art is really divine. And where does that really come from, you know? But when I'm young, I'm mesmerized by the ability to make music. And I want to be able to get there when I'm older.
0: Mm. What was the first instrument you learned to play? Because you play quite a few.
1: Yeah, piano. Piano is the first instrument I learned to play. In first grade, I had some lessons. That's like my parents forced me to do it. I didn't really (laughs) want to do it. And then I got back into it when I was around 18 years old.
0: This love for soul music and vintage records leads Adrian to develop his own theory for how to find rare music. I love some of the observations you made about crate digging and how you had certain covers that you would look for. One of the things that I think you said was about there's always these covers of the white blonde girl and those are the records you want to get because oftentimes they would be covers of songs and you were very interested in how the composition was. Yes.
1: I have a record store, so I'm always digging for records in my, in my shop. And my record store, the Artform Studio is an expansion and duplication of my own record collection. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as a DJ, I love records. And also, I tell people that new music to me are old records I haven't heard before because I really don't listen to much new music. So, when you travel the world looking for records, when you travel through America, there's certain aspects that are synonymous. If you look at an album cover and it's very creative and artistic, it's usually reflective of the artist. Mm -hmm. And it usually means that the artist is into something. If you look at an album and you flip it over and it's multicultural, a white person, an Asian person, a black person, you know that something interesting is happening on this album. Um, And then when it went to the album cover with the white blonde girl, doing whatever pose. What that was about is that a lot of those kind of albums are the cinematic albums. The John Hanks Orchestra plays the romantic tunes of the soulful 60s or Mm -hmm. something like that. And what you're hearing are these orchestras, these live bands, having a new take on beautiful renditions of music. And the way that they record are always a little off, so they would be a little more funky, a little more soulful, a little more jazzy because it's not necessarily pop music. Mm-hmm. It's just made more so for background library music. So you find a lot of cool stuff like that that a lot of people don't know about. Yeah, I love covers, but I love vinyl culture. I love music.
0: So you, you talked about being in your late teens and you get into hip hop and beat making and you have these samplers. Um, but at some point you you give up all that and you go directly to the source material. Yeah, I'm interested in what, prompted this shift. I've heard you talk about cinematic sounds and soundtracks that have influenced you and people like Porter's Head. But I'm also curious how you also went from an entertainment lawyer to then teaching yourself to playing all these instruments. I mean, that I I wondered if like the sense of copyright played into it or just the music you heard in your head that you wanted to try and make.
1: I grew up in a very academic family. So my father's a lawyer and my mom, PhD. She's retired now, but she was a like director level at Boeing. Mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to be an artist, but I, you know, I wanted to make sure I had high education so that if this didn't work out, I could at least do that. I was doing music while I was in law school. Like I'd be working, going to school, come home instruments. The law school thing more so was an education thing for me. I love law. I mean, I was a professor for three years, but I never practiced. Mm-hmm. It was always about me really doing music and film and, and all that stuff, you know? So my academic journey was really, I, I call it self investment. So when I'm doing contracts, I don't need to have a lawyer look at my contracts, mm-hmm. you know? And my ability to analyze, like I'm sharper, you know, I I taught myself how to write for orchestra. I didn't know music notation. I had to read books on all that stuff. But if I didn't go to law school, I wouldn't know that you could just pick up a book and learn a craft. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So education for me, put me in the position to be able to even make an album like the American Negro, because it, it shows me how to read, obviously, like, Law school is about understanding detail and analysis. I'm allowed to have a professorial take on the messages that surround my motif musically.
0: I think we can agree that it's quite the feat to teach yourself to play any instrument, never mind several, and then also write for an orchestra. But when Adrian dreamed up and released Something About April as the soundtrack to a film that never was, his ambitions went much further. Am I right in thinking you recorded and released something about April with this in mind that perhaps maybe then somebody else, like a hip-hop group, might then use something about April as a source record and sample from that?
1: Absolutely. When I started releasing my music, I wanted to make those records that I fell in love with, those records that made me want to sample them. And I wanted to not just make the break, not just make the part that people want to sample. I want to make the music around it and have these little golden nuggets in between. And that was like something about April. I was hoping some somebody like a Jay-Z or a Kanye at the time would sample it And then it happened to be just Jay-Z sampling sirens And and he also sampled a song called Reverie on that album And then so many other people at the same time were just sampling my work And that's that, coupled with Black Dynamite, is how people actually started to listen for me And it's funny because a lot of people thought I was like some old man making this music They didn't realize I was a young dude <laughs> doing this
0: stuff (laughs) i love that
1: yeah
0: his reverence for analog sound and classic soul music would lead him to work with the legends of philadelphia soul 60s band the delphonics your partnership with william hart the band's songwriter who sings all the falsetto on it um, it also makes me think of artists like Sharon Jones and Lee Fields and their partnership with Deptone Records and the Dept Kings that Mark Ronson put together for Amy Winehouse record Back to Black. But you're like all the Deb Kings and more rolled into one. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And what was it like working on a project where I'd imagined he must have been a legend of yours?
1: Yes, he was, he still is, you know, and it was an honor for me to work with the luminary like that because it's great to show people that, Hey, William Hart is still here. Make sure you give him his flowers while he's alive. You know, he's one of the greatest soul songwriters here in America with Lala I means I love you. Didn't I blow your mind this time? I mean, there's so mm-hmm. many ready or not. Um, and like it was, it was a privilege to be able to be part of his legacy, their legacy in doing it. So I'm honored.
0: That following year, Adrian met Ali Shaheed Muhammad from the hip-hop group A Tribe Called Quest and in him found a kindred spirit. You grew up listening to A Tribe Called Quest and I think you actually said that the jazz samplings that they use also kind of introduced you to this greater world of jazz. And your journeys seem similar because you go from sampling to then going to play the instruments that you've heard in the source records and trying to make music like how did you guys sort of meet and come together and decide you want to work together
1: I was on tour. It was either for Delphonics or Ghostface, I don't even remember, but in New York. And Ali tweeted saying that he liked my music. And I was like, damn, you like my music? You don't even know how much I like your music. And I said, yo, I'm in Brooklyn, we should link. So we had lunch, and we've been tight ever since. Um, at the time, I was working on an album for Souls of Mischief, and I asked if he'd be willing to be on it. Um, he said, yeah, and he flew out, and he worked on stuff with me, and we just had a crazy relationship in the studio. And I said, man, we should just do more. And that's how we started developing The Midnight Hour.
0: The Midnight Hour is an orchestral soul and jazz fusion group that has featured seasoned guest vocalists like CeeLo Green, Lady Bird Mecca of the Diggable Planets, and indie band Stereo Labs' Leticia Sadier. The album also makes space for younger voices. On this track, Bitches Do Voodoo, you hear 18-year-old songwriter Angela Munoz deliver a new song, Like an Old Soul. Adrian and Ali not had started working on The Midnight Hours debut back in 2013, but had to set it aside as both then started scoring the Netflix series Luke Cage. Their long awaited album was eventually released in 2018, and it was an album celebrated for its black excellence. It was a much needed panacea to the times. It was when it seemed we couldn't get through the day without another post about a black man or woman dying in police custody. It was also foregrounded by an intense climate of divisiveness.
1: No matter the pejorative choice, we are black. Unlike the tar they used on their faces to reinforce a the stereotype, their stereos don't like. And I say this because I am of sound mind. And the sounds that reverberate in my mind are never confused by the volume of misinformation programming the minds of America. Black people, listen to your own music, as soul is the connection to our ancestors. A language of total tension.:
0: How did the seeds of this record come to you, and how do you feel like now that it's out in the world?:
1: It's very special. I keep saying this is my magnum opus. It's the most important piece of art I've worked on to date because this is art where the message matters more than the music, right? This album is my oral transcription. It's my form of communication. It's me trying to educate people about concepts of racism that are not known to most, you know, because a lot of racism... Is, is merely tradition and custom. A lot of it is not even intentional, you know? Um, and a lot of these machinations are derivative of where our nation came from. And we're a nation that was built as a slaveocracy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We're not a nation that happened to enslave people. We are a nation in America that built America with property, with chattel, which are the enslaved. That's what the law said, right? So I started really putting the ideas together for this album a couple years ago when I was on tour. And I started realizing how much people don't know about the real history of the world, Hmm. especially in America, where our nation teaches the youth a filtered form of history they talk about slavery mm-hmm. but slavery's a paragraph or a couple pages in a book that is 500 pages America doesn't really get into the truth behind why we are in the positions we are today and when i started to realize this i started writing just different things different concepts try to figure out what it is i want to talk about and then when we had quarantine which started for us around March. I said, well, I'm off Mm -hmm. tour. This is the time for me to do this because it's it's such an all-encompassing project that if I don't do it now, it's not going to be done for a while. So I started working on it. And when I was about a third into the album, George Floyd happened. And there's this serendipitous movement around the world, this consciousness that was germane to the reasons as to why I made the album. I want people to come together under the auspices of humanity. And that's really what this album is about.
0: The American Negro has a very, very provocative cover of a Black man hanging on the front and on the back. It's um, the point of view from the back and it has a message on the back saying this nigger voted. Why did you pick that image?
1: Why did I pick both images or the back mm,
0: image? Both images. I mean, they, they're okay. almost one thing, isn't it?
1: Yes, exactly. So basically, I picked the image of me being hung from a tree because this represents lynching postcards. So in the the late 1800s, early 1900s, in America, it was very popular for people to, to disseminate lynching postcards. These are postcards with a black man being lynched. And they were like cele, uh, celebratory type cards. You would You would pay to get in many times to see the person being hung. And this was like their form of, quote, vigilante justice. And many times these black people didn't even commit a crime or if they were accused yeah. of committing, committing a crime, there was no real judicial reprisals. There was no real justice in determining whether they actually did the crime or not. And it was, a, it was like a good thing for America to let the blacks know where their place is here. And I wanted people to see that image of me because I wanted them to relate the times of yesterday those times of injustice to today because lynching, being lynched by a rope is dying by asphyxiation. Today, we have people like Eric Gardner, George Floyd, dying from asphyxiation. And the machinations of racism was, yes, put together centuries ago, but the vestige of that racism still continues to to this day. It's not as brazen, but it's still here. And the more we educate people on that, the more they realize what's actually around us. So in me creating this album cover and me creating the back cover that said this nigger voted, I wanted people to see a sense of reality
0: Mm.
1: that this nigger voted stuff. Like Mm. there were people that were hung that had that on their back, you know? So it also shows the importance and or lack of importance of suffrage.
0: What was sort of um, the guiding structure of the songs and its chronology?
1: I had a bunch of topics I wanted to discuss. So I wanted to make sure I discussed the pejorative terms. Then I wanted to talk about how black is beautiful. I wanted to talk about my double consciousness. Mm. In putting the album together, I didn't dictate a conceptual order, right? I knew all these things had to be discussed. And I knew that I had to deliver the message in a way where by the end of the album, you get a a grand picture of what I'm really talking about, right? So in Watch the Children, I'm talking about how beautiful and innocent children are and how they just love each other because racism is a learned behavior. And Dying Mm -hmm. on the Run, I'm talking about children killing children, having guns and like, yo, what are you doing? Like, you don't realize why you're even in this position, this is derivative of the system. Like there's insurmountable handicaps that have been placed in front of you. And that's now putting you in a position to live a life of crime. You know, I'm talking about James Mincy Jr. Mm -hmm. To Margaret Garner, to George Stinney Jr. To educate people on a few individuals that have died that you never heard of. Mm -hmm. Uh, I talk about light on the horizon because I don't want people to live life with a dead soul. I want them to understand what's happening, why we are where we are now, but I also want you to be able to be happy and smile that you are alive because there's so many beautiful things that should make you smile, you know? So, I mean, like I talk about a myriad of concepts, but they all fall under the concept of racism is wrong. Mm. So there's no real order.
0: It starts with your manifesto of the musician as a document and it touches on the sort of moot point that a lot of music came from the struggle of black people with the blues and how so much of like modern American pop music has its roots there. Um, And uh, I think people still fight that idea.
1: The truth is just the truth. (laughs) You know, that's where the the music comes from. But I wanted to start off by really talking about the pejoratives of of choice, these euphemisms that are used... To delineate what race you are, you know, mm-hmm. talking about race is really a fallacy, it's a social construct. But if we're going to talk in the forms of race being real, um, what is a pejorative term of choice? Am I a coon? Am I a nigger? Am I a negro? Am I colored? What am I? And I wanted to just bring light to this issue because our language is music and. With music, we use it to try to conquer this image or or concept that we are merely feeble-minded creatures. You know, we're people too.
0: It's interesting because you talk about blackness um, as a costume simulated by stereotypes and you define what blackness means to you, which sort of dovetails nicely into your podcast, Invisible Blackness, where Chuck D from Public Enemy goes on further into this evolution of blackness or, or what pejorative label to use. But he grounds it in his own experience.
3: We black folk. We black. And I, and I you're talking to a person that was old enough to have negro on their birth certificate. And for the first 10 years of my life, damn. we went from Negro in 1960 on my birth certificate to colored around the civil rights. I, you know, I remember the Civil Rights Act and asking a question as a five-year-old, like, at the same time I'm getting the polio shot. So wow. we were colored <laughs> damn, at that time. Damn, yeah. Adrian, we were colored. We were colored <laughs> folks. But then by the late 1960s, there was this full court press and initiative that black would be the term whether you pro con like it or not, you feeling or not feeling it, whether you have Baptist or Muslim or black is going to be where it's at. And it was pushed. It didn't come. I didn't, it just didn't come automatically. It came from a fact that you had, you know, black power, black Mm -hmm. Panthers, you know, Mm -hmm. black was a bad word, man. And, 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 even then, everybody had their philosophical little, you know, areas of difference. That was the narrative that everybody kind of hung their hat on by 67, 68. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then cu- culture came in and co-signed it, whether it would be the, the covers of, of Ebony that co-signed it, along with James Brown saying, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, and losing his white audience off yes. of it. Because yes. he had white kids singing it. Yes, yes, <laughs> like, yes. So all that all that figured in by, so this is the tripped out thing, going from Negro to colored to black by the end of that decade.
0: That was such a amazing moment in the podcast itself. And it was so sort of illuminated so many things for me and the way he described it as as a label. And he made it broader to all the people of the diaspora had you always conceived this album as like this multi-prong, multimedia project with a podcast and a short film? Because the podcast really allows you to have more conversations, more nuanced conversations about this.
1: Absolutely. Because I knew that when I started putting the album together, there's way too much information, way too much information. So I had to deduce it and then use the podcast and use the film to break down concepts. Again, this is all about really educating people. And like the motif is about the fact that we should just all really embrace humanity, love each other. Mm -hmm. But in understanding that concept, you have to understand why we are where we are today. And you have to understand history. So I can't talk about everything in my album. I still can't even talk about everything in my podcast. I still can't even talk about everything in my movie. But with those added companion pieces, I could definitely... Deliver the the overall message much better.
0: Can you explain this minstrel dance and why it's problematic? Because like I understand what minstrel means, but as you say, it's like I don't think of any other culture, or race that has this whole idea of the minstrel.
1: So in America, we had something called blackface, and it, it actually became popular around the world. But blackface started off with white people putting black tar on their faces and performing across america showcasing a caricature of black culture because whites and blacks didn't hang out Hmm. so these were two different cultures in the same nation but whites were very interested in what it was like to to take a peek into that black culture black american culture so these whites would act as blacks and this started this whole thing where these minstrel performers would perform, taking up over-determined stereotypes of what black culture is. And then blacks started to perform in blackface and show what black life really was like and or use some of those caricatures and reverse some of those negative stereotypes to mm. show us a, a more positive side of, of Black America and or just give us the chance to get a foot in the door or a chair at the table. So on the album, I talk about the fact that white people have been doing this minstrel dance that's a little offbeat. Mm. And what I'm really trying to say is that under the concept of white imperialism, they've taken our culture and bleached it without giving respect to where it comes from or respecting our art. That's why you have Oscars so white. You have these things, you know, you have people saying, oh, rock and roll didn't come from black people. You know, it's like, why would you say that? You know, there's no reason to say that. I mean, we're all humans. But if you want to talk about race, if you want to actually dichotomize us and break us down with race, well, this is what happened here. This is what happened here. So... uh, When I talk about the menstrual dance, I'm speaking on many things. Uh, But in that particular instance, I'm talking about these principles whereby whites are denying the contributions of blacks to America.
0: So what do you mean by double consciousness? I went and researched a little bit about W.E.B. Du Bois, but can you Explain what double consciousness means in relation to this piece of work.
1: Double consciousness is a perspective where you are battling with image versus identity. And when I look in the mirror, I see myself as Adrian Young, a black guy, Adrian Young, I know myself. But then I also have to see myself in the mirror and look at myself through the vantage point that white imperialist, Americans have created. So I have to look at myself as the face of evil. I got to look at myself as a black man that can be blamed for the ills of society in many ways, you know, from I got to look at myself as a caricature or overdetermined stereotype created by racist white Americans that have become custom. You see what I'm saying? So like I look Mm -hmm. at myself With a duality that I shouldn't have to. And this is something of many people of color. Like you always have to look at yourself from those vantage points. So when white people look at themselves in the mirror, they see themselves. The issue is, when they see themselves through the vantage point of society, well, what do they see? What do they have to identify with versus how they see their image you know it's not the same of those of darker hue
0: so you mentioned in double conscious the song itself these fights with your daughter how do they usually begin
1: well i mean my my daughter's seven years old so i i, I said five-year-old at the time because she's smarter now she's, she's wiser now so mm-hmm. we don't necessarily have those same conversations but when we did um it wasn't something that we talked about that much, you know, because it wasn't anything that we had to to talk about too much. It's just she felt that this person is pink. Why would you say that they're white? And obviously what mm-hmm. she's saying is rational. She, she's not looking at it, like I say, on the album through the stained glass of this American optic, you know. So like. There's no reason to sit there and, and talk to her about it. I mean, my, my daughter right now at seven is learning about Abraham Lincoln, and she's learning about Honest Abe and all this stuff. But, I mean, mm-hmm. there's no reason for me to tell her right now, hey, did you know that Abraham Lincoln wanted to send, was, was strongly considering sending all the black people back to Africa? Do you know that Abraham Lincoln said that blacks are not of equal Value to whites? Did, did he know that he talked about this kind of There's no reason for me to say that to her right now. So there's mm. conversations that happen in time.
0: Adrian himself first became aware of this history of racism, not from any history book, but as a young teenager listening to the lyrics of Public Enemy's 1990 album, Fear of a Black Planet.
1: From Public Enemy, you start, and when I heard that fight the power, I started to realize it. Um, and then in eighth grade, when I read Malcolm X's book, it's like, oh, there's more. And then in my undergrad, it was political science. So when you're studying political science, you're learning about the governments from around the world. So I'm learning about apartheid. I'm learning about the Cuban revolution. Um, I'm learning about how blacks have been treated. So it's just starting to all make sense, you know, and then when I go to law school, starting to read about the Jim Crow laws and the slave codes that subjugated the black race and codified racism. So it's one of those things where I just kept finding all this information. It wasn't just one real moment.
0: Some of these concepts are complex. Customs that seem harmless at face value Reveal an uglier truth if you take a closer look at its history. They're anchored in a very racist past, and sometimes that past can be fairly recent. Four decades before I Can't Breathe became a rallying cry for the Black Lives Matter movement there was the death of 20-year-old James Mincy Jr., At the time, it was reported that a significant number of blacks had died in police custody because of the LAPD's use of the chokehold method. In their defense, the chief of police suggested that this was happening to black men in higher numbers because their bodies were inferior. You know, we think of this thing as something that used to happen and you know, it doesn't happen anymore. But of course, with George Floyd, it came right up to the fore that it's happening still and quite often. Absolutely. And with James Mincy Jr., one of the things that they said in their defense, the police department said was, Oh, you know, there's something inferior about the way a black man's arteries are that he can't that if you do that to him, it's not gonna swell up in the right way and he's gonna die exactly. from it. I mean
1: it's ridiculous. He's but that goes back to eugenics because, you know, we were always looked at as creatures and, and, and whites came in to civilize us and we owe them something. So it's okay for them to treat us a certain way. So we, de- we still deal with that. And it, like I said, racism isn't always intentional, mm. Racism establishes customs that turn into the norm and us as a nation have to realize where these norms derived from, you know, especially when there's inequity.
0: How did you decide what kind of music you wanted to juxtapose with the Margaret Garner track? I mean, the story is is horrifying, but the track itself is just beautiful.
1: I wanted to do something where it sounded like I'm making a song with like Stevie Wonder or something, you know, it has that kind of soulful vibe. But I wanted to make it very beautiful when we're really singing about an extremely dark subject. We're singing about the fact that Margaret Garner killed her baby so that her baby didn't have to go back to slavery. Mm -hmm. But we're talking about the beauty of the baby and we're saying... You know uh my my black baby dark and lovely your skin's so fine you know um you know you make you shine so glisten in the world and all that stuff but then we're also saying please forgive me so Mm -hmm. it's like this there's this juxtaposition where if you don't listen to the words you don't really know what's going on but it was it was definitely by choice
0: favorite track. Oh, thank you. It just also kind of prompted me to, Jen, go find out. And I think that's how anybody who comes to listen to this and and wants to lean in, and they should, you know, to really hear what you're saying, and then if there's anything that they don't know what the reference is, I mean, we do have the internet today. It's so easy to go deep into these things. The other one was uh, when you mentioned the Zong ship. Yeah,
1: yeah. Race is a social construct with no biological truth, a fallacy pioneered by immigrating Europeans at the dawn of America. Essentially, the colonists pioneered racism to stratify a new class structure so that people of color could be exploited under the doctrine of manifest destiny. This principle created a monopoly with other imperial nations to control and exploit African cargo.
2: Transatlantic
1: slave trade. Now think about this. The bedrock of Western society is built with the blood of African cargo, fermenting ever so slowly in the absence of oxygen. I can't breathe is a volatilization of the seething energy escaping their last breath. The exclamation of discarded cargo at sea. The zong.
0: That again, when I was reading about it, and I also was then listening to a podcast where they talked about it. And and I started to feel a little uncomfortable because they were talking about it in a very kind of academic way, which is maybe the way you're supposed to discuss these things. But they were all white people discussing about this. And I felt like in a panel where they maybe had three three people speak, that they should have had a scholar who was black because it's just something to the tone of it that made it even more chilling. With well, something like
1: that, Obviously, it's, it's good to have somebody black. You could get a different size from it. But moreover, it's just about understanding what the history is. When you're dealing with the Zong, you're dealing with uh, a ship that killed, I think it was like 160 blacks or something, I forget, threw them overboard. Yeah.
0: 132, yeah.
1: 132. But they tried to collect insurance from them. And because by law, they're property, they're not human beings. And mm. they were trying to bring murder charges against them, but the court said, "How can they be guilty of murder when they just threw over property? It's it's, it's like throwing a piece of wood overboard. That's just history." When mm. I talk about the evil of whites in the seventeen hundreds, sixteen hundreds, and eighteen hundreds, there was white people that were really good. <laughs> at the same time, <laughs> you know, there were white. <laughs> There were white people that enslaved people but did not actually put them to work and enslaved them for the purpose of benevolence and giving them a good life. Because had they not done that, they know what could happen to these people. So, I mean, you know, speaking on history, is just history regardless of what race you are. It's about being truthful and having an honest, virtuous connection from the past to where we are right now and using that history to connect the dots. Mm -hmm.
0: Do you have a favorite song on this record?
1: I don't because, like I said, for this record, it's about the message. I always say, like, making good music isn't difficult, right? But making people, moving people with your messages is something that's difficult. So it's it's all one song to me.
0: Mm -hmm. So what do you hope people take away from The American Negro and the podcast as well as the film,
1: I want people to watch the film, listen to the podcast, listen to the album. And after that, form an opinion as to what racism really means, wherever they may be in the world. I want them to have an informed opinion. Because most people view racism through the eyes of their institutions, through their nations, and what their nations tell them. I want them to make their own opinions based on the facts I'm providing. And at the same time, I want them to realize that even though there's racism in the world that you still got to be happy because there's so much things to be happy about and if you do have the power use your power to make the place better for other people I want my children to grow up in a place that sees them as equals
0: Mm. what does it mean for you as a black man to be able to put out this work at this moment in time are you Sounds like you're optimistic about the future. And I think you, in the actual album, you, in Paradox of the Positive, you say we've been marching for years, but haven't moved an inch. And, and you know, as an outsider, I would have thought that the civil rights movement was the high watermark and that was it. And all these changes should have brought us not to where we are today, but here we are.
1: So we're always evolving for the better. I mean, even having Trump as a president really allowed the brazen racists to come out and expose themselves. And it also made people realize that there are underlying discriminatory principles that have been plaguing us for a long time. That's the good that came out, or some of the good that came out from having this Trump administration. Understanding that things are always getting better, even if it's just incrementally, it's getting better. So me being able to put this work out there, I just hope that it's serving as a catalyst for people. Because when you're educated, it's a little bit harder to trick you. It's a little bit harder for you to fall for fallacious perspectives and reasoning. There, there's a reason why Blacks weren't allowed to read centuries ago by law. There's a reason why blacks weren't allowed to go to certain schools. There's a reason why, in many areas, blacks were only allowed to read something called the Slave Bible, where they they redacted a lot of the New Testament in order to show slaves that they should obey their masters. Education is key to show people why we should be living under natural law versus merely just substantive law, because people make substantive law and try to enforce that. Mm -hmm. But a lot of that law is created to benefit the few. Natural law is humanity. And I hope that when people listen to the album, they could feel that. They could feel that there are things wrong that you may not have realized and feel that they have a voice to help repair the damages that are derivative from slavery.
2: Didn't come this far just to turn back.
0: Been listening to Under the Radar Podcast featuring Adrian Young. This episode was produced by me, Celine Dioblocki, and executive produced by Mark Redfern. Additional editing was provided by Azine Samari with media and graphic design by Jenny Woodward. Our resident legal eagle is Deborah Davis Hahn. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print magazine and website founded in 2001 by Mark and Wendy Redfin. You can find us at www.undertheradarmag.com. If you can, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash under underscore the underscore radar. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. If you liked this episode, please rate the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us so you don't miss an episode. Till next time.